All right, we're starting a new sermon series. Every week we study the Bible because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So we're going to be in a series uh, starting in the book of Luke this week as we slow down and think about the birth of Christ. So Luke chapter 1 today can be found on page 855 in the Black Bibles uh, under your chairs if you want to grab one of those. Luke chapter 1. Uh, We're starting with the theme in Advent of hope. We talk about Advent, as I said, with these Advent devotionals as slowing down to meditate on Jesus. And I just want to clarify something because we get people from all different directions at Grace Bible Church, uh, church backgrounds, non-church backgrounds. Some of you come from one tradition. Some of you come from another tradition. And so we really try to focus on the essentials of following Jesus together. Sometimes we incorporate traditions from church history, but we want to always be clear that we are bound to obey the Bible, not church tradition. Church tradition can be a tool to help us to celebrate Jesus and what the scriptures say. Christmas is one of those issues. Christmas is a tradition. It's not a command. Another way to say that is that Christmas and Advent is a strategy. It's a strategy for following Jesus. It's a way to throw a party celebrate Jesus, think about Jesus. But it is not by any means commanded in Scripture. Sometimes people ask us about our themes. We will slow down over the next few weeks and focus on the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. Um, If you go deep in studying Advent traditions in different denominations, there are multiple ways to do that. There's no set tradition. A lot of people come from certain traditions. Like if you're Lutheran, you're like, why don't you do it the right way, Dave? Or if you're Episcopal, why don't you do it the right way, Dave? There's actually no right way to do it, okay? Um, So we have picked one of the 17 traditions, and we're following that one loosely. Uh, But what we're trying to do is slow down and say, you know what? The world is celebrating Christmas. Let's make sure that we celebrate Jesus. As we slow down at this Christmas time of year, enjoy him, enjoy parties, celebrate, put up lights, have fun, but let's make sure that it's all about Jesus. And that's really our hope. Uh, So our first sermon this week is on hope. And the title is Hope Breaks the Silence. Hope Breaks the Silence. We're picking this up in chapter 1. And what we see in the scriptures is that there's this long 400-year silence between Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, and Jesus breaking onto the scene at Christmas time, the birth of Jesus. And so 400 years of of no prophet, no word from God. And so we have this uh, time of... uh, history where the Israels were exiled, and then we had this time where the Israels were, uh, Israelites were brought back to Israel from exile. They were celebrating God's goodness and bringing them back to the land, and yet things were still broken, right? They were waiting for further fulfillments, and so there are these prophecies by Isaiah and Malachi, the last one, prophesying like, yeah, there's going to be a fuller fulfillment. Hope is coming. Good things are still coming. God is going to restore Israel. He's going to restore humanity. And that's the hope that begins to be fulfilled in Jesus. But they were waiting for 400 years. They're like, God, God, where are you? It's, it's a long silence. I was just talking to a friend this week who was battling cancer. And he was talking about one of the hardest things about the fight with cancer. It's those long periods of waiting in silence, waiting for test results, not knowing what's going to happen next, imagining best case scenario, worst case scenario, just waiting in silence. He said that was the hardest part. You know, you do a biopsy, you wait for test results. How bad is it? You get results. They're like, okay, we need to do surgery. They do surgery. Again, more test results. Did we get all of it? Did we not 
get all of it. There's this waiting in silence. And that's how we often feel in different circumstances of life. That's how the Israelites felt as they were waiting for God to speak to them again. And that's where the story picks up in Luke chapter 1. We'll read the first few verses and then we'll kind of unpack the rest of it as we move through the text. Starting in verse 1. Whoops, I've got to get up my glasses. Sorry. Hold on, hold on. Here we go. Okay. Luke 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this is the intro to the entire book of Luke, right? Luke is saying, hey, I'm, I'm setting aside some time to quiz the eyewitnesses to lay out an orderly account of this story of Jesus and Jesus' followers. Luke and the book of Acts go together as a package written by Luke. Now verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The story lays out these characters that are being introduced to us. They were struggling with barrenness, the inability to have children. They were hurting. They were praying about it. We'll see later in the story. They were wondering where God was in their pain and their silence. And this is on top of this bigger story of Israel the whole country, the whole people group waiting for God to speak again. They were a people that God had spoken to repeatedly through these prophets. But it was 400 years since Malachi had spoken to them. They're waiting in silence. We want to give thanks that God speaks to us through his word, but we want to pray that his Holy Spirit would help us to hear him. Sometimes we don't have ears to hear, so let's pray that we would hear his word. God, we pray that you would be with us. We pray that supernaturally you would open up our ears, that we would hear you, we would see you, we would know your presence. God, we pray that you would change us, that you would make us a hopeful people, transform us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the theme this week is hope, specifically hope breaks the silence. And I just want to define that for you. Hope is an interesting word in English and also theologically how it's used in the Bible. You see this kind of interplay in both places. In the dictionary, you'll look it up, and hope is a feeling. Hope is wishing for something to pass that you don't know if it's going to happen or not. Wishing for something to come. You don't know if it's going to come or not. It's, it's wishing, it's hoping, it's wanting something. Hope is a feeling. But in the dictionary, you'll also find second or third definition. It's also the ground for hope. Hope is the thing that proves that that good thing is coming. And so it's an interesting word. You see the same thing happen in the Bible. Hope is a feeling, oh, I wish this would happen. And hope is something very solid and secure. It's Jesus Christ himself. It's the proof that God has conquered sin and death forever. And so we wrestle with that, and the Christian life is often aligning the feelings with the reality. It's often aligning our faith in Jesus with the objective reality of Jesus conquering the world for us. And we'll see that worked out in the characters that we read about this morning. We'll see three things as we move through the story. In verses 1 through 9, we'll see that people bring hope. 
God uses people. People bring hope. Number two, we'll see that the Holy Spirit brings hope. There's a big prophecy, need, and promise of the Holy Spirit changing things and bringing hope. And then finally, slow fulfillments bring hope. Slow fulfillments bring hope. God often does not work on the timetable that we wish he would work on, right? So number one, we see that people bring hope. People bring hope. We'll see this in verses 1 through 9. We read some of this already. Uh, To summarize what I'm about to reread to you, we have kind of two categories of people that are unfolded to us. We had the introduction to the entire book of Luke that lays out Luke himself as a gospel writer and other ministers of the word who have proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And so you've got this category of kind of messengers of Jesus, right? We've got people that tell us about Jesus. It might have been a faithful grandmother or Sunday school teacher that told you about Jesus. There are people like that in the world. We get to be those kinds of people that tell other people about the hope of Jesus. So that's a class of people that tell others about hope. And then we'll also be introduced to these other characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and Zechariah is a priest. And God built this entire system in the Old Testament, and he set up these people called priests whose whole job was to display hope through the temple service. I often talk about the temple service, the sacrificial system, as flannel graph, as billboards. It's like a drama where God's promises, his holiness, his atonement are continually acted out before his people again and again and again. God was just doing this show on this mountain in Israel. And he was inviting all the nations. Read the Psalms. He says, nations come and worship God. He's just showing them again and again. God is holy. People are not holy. We're sinful. God makes sacrifices to bring us into his presence. And so it's a message of the gospel. It's a primitive gospel. It's a good news that even though we're outside the holiness of God, we can be brought into the holiness of God through sacrifices. We know it's most clearly portrayed in Jesus Christ himself who died on the cross for our sins, whose conquering sin and death through his resurrection is our hope that brings us into his presence. So we've got these two classes of people here in these first few verses. We've got the messengers of Jesus and then we've got the priests themselves. Verse one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is, okay? Uh, Most excellent is often a word for like a judge or a governor, important person, so maybe that's who he was. We're not for sure, but we know contextually it's that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I myself came to believe in Jesus as I heard the story of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. I gave myself to him in response to his incredible sacrifice. We call this faith. There's power in the story. There's power in the gospel. Romans 1.16 is clear about this. It's the power for salvation. And yet later, I struggled with certainty. And God gave me his word. God gave me other Christians, God gave me mentors, God gave me books about apologetics that over the next few years I would study and read to build up my certainty of like, oh, okay, this, this makes sense. I was able to kind of put it together in a way that made sense with the contradictions and the struggles and the pains I saw in the world. And so it seems like a similar pattern with Theophilus. He seems to be one with faith. And yet in verse four, it says, I'm writing this and putting this together, Theophilus, so you can have certainty concerning the things you've already been taught, right? You've already been taught about Jesus, but but we need more. We need to learn about. We need to understand who he is. That's, that's why we gather to study the Bible every week here. 
And so he's talking, Luke is talking about the people who have written the other Gospels in this introduction. He's talking about people that have preached the Gospel, and he's preaching uh, and talking now about himself as well as another messenger of the Gospel. So we're not Bible writers. It's complete. But we are those that can be people that tell others about Jesus. We can share the good news. I'm, I'm not writing the Bible. I'm not an apostle. But I am, like them, sharing the good news. And we should all be about that, encouraging our friends with this hope. Then we learn about the priests. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so we're getting a little bit into the character of these people, this priest whose whole job was to display who God is through the temple service. That's what the temple is all about. That's what he would do. He's in the division of Abijah. It's talking about a rotation. So they have different rotations that would go to the temple and operate at different times. So that's kind of the language here, talking about it was his time to be there and the division of Abijah, right? It was like different ranks and different orders of the priesthood. But their job was to be the people they gave hope to others. And again, we're not Old Testament priests, but the New Testament says that in the New Covenant, we're all prophets, priests, and kings. We're all ambassadors of Christ. So there's a sense in which we also share in this work, displaying the new temple, Jesus Christ himself. We get to be people that give hope to other people. We also see some of their story here, right? The specifics that they wanted a child, but were unable to have a child. And we've talked about this in Scripture. The Bible's very clear that that's kind of the the normal direction of human life, wanting to get married, wanting to have children, wanting to build a business, wanting to build a a physical life together, and that's a good blessing from God. Um, The New Testament also is very clear that more important even than physical children is spiritual children. And so there's this promise of productivity that we have in the gospel that, that we can be productive, we can bless others, we can... Uh, build a house, so to speak, spiritually, of helping others, being people who bring hope to other people. But commonly in the Old Testament, they didn't have that fuller perspective, and they were just brokenhearted over barrenness. They felt often like it was a punishment, like they were being stricken by God. But did you notice how the text was written here? The text is trying to make sure we understand these weren't bad people that God was like striking, right? God can punish people if God wants to punish. But that's not what he's doing here. Uh, Look at it again. It says in verse 6, They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were really good people. These were really good people that loved God. They were doing what God said, but they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. We're getting a little peek behind the curtain. They were sad. They were brokenhearted. But it wasn't because of their sin. This was just the reality of, in their life. God's telling a story here with their life. I think it's also important, just as a side note, this is not the main point, but it's okay to say that somebody's righteous. Um, You might think, of course it is, Dave. In Protestant Reformation circles, sometimes we get so focused on the reality that we cannot merit God's favor. We do not have a righteousness of our own before God in an eternal sense that we can get freaked out when the Bible makes comments like this. Like, wait, nobody's righteous. No, not one, right? (laughs) And so there's a different perspective here. We would call this phenomenological righteousness. That's my $10 word of the day. Um, 
It's like the phenomena you see, like they're good folk, right? They're good people. Look at those people. They're good people. The Bible does that. James talks about that. If you have faith, don't just say you have faith, but actually like be a good person. Live as if you have faith, right? So there's two sides of that. You can never live so righteously that God has to bless you. We're all dependent on the gifted righteousness of Christ. So that's where we want to be clear that we don't have a righteousness of our own. But we can be good people, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow Jesus and be good people. And and they were good people. They were righteous. Don't worry, we can do sermons without slides. It'll be fine. Um, And so we see, again, two classes of people, kind of New Testament messengers of the gospel. These are people that bring hope. Old Testament priests, people who bring hope. God calls on us to be people who bring hope as well. The silence, this 400-year silence, the silence of praying for a baby and, and getting no baby, your particular silence, your particular powerlessness that you're struggling with right now, that, that silence can make you and can make me feel very alone. And God sends people into our life to remind us that God is not as far away as we thought. God uses people to communicate his presence and his encouragement and his hope to us. I hope you see that. I hope you've been blessed with those people in your life. I I see those connections being made in the church all the time where you're encouraging others. You're being those people that bring hope and where others are encouraging you, you're receiving that hope. I know I receive that hope from so many of you. It might be a card or a phone call or just a a passing conversation. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be these kinds of people that bring hope. I found a picture of someone putting their hand on a shoulder. It's kind of the cliche, you know, comforting motion there. There, there, brother, it's going to be okay, right? And this is a part of it. Giving a hug. The, the scripture talks again and again of the holy kiss. We joke about the holy side hug. You know, we want, to, we want to convey affection. We want to convey comfort. We want to be people that bring hope to others. I want to thank you for the ways that I've seen you do that so well. And have you think about what are some specific ways that you can bring hope to those around you? Maybe it's a phone call. Is there somebody in your life you need to call? Just check on them. I'm so thankful for the way people do that with me. Maybe it's a note. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's just some time just listening. We see this pattern in Romans 12 where we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Mirror what the other person's feeling. There's definitely a time to exhort each other, a time to speak truth, a time to say, all right, let's go. We've got to do this, right? But we also want to make sure we're leading with empathy, with sympathy, with comfort. We want to be a people that bring hope to others. Colossians 1 is a really helpful passage for me. I was looking at kind of what hope looks like in our life. And it mentions hope three times. Colossians 1.5 123 and 127, we see this kind of transition of hope being a thing in heaven. Because said before, hope is, hope is this solid anchor we have in Jesus himself. But then hope is also a feeling that we have. We hope for something, right? And so we see this progress of hope in our life. So hope one, uh, Colossians 1.5 says, hope is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard in the word of truth, the gospel, Right? So that's kind of like the solid rockness of our hope. Hebrews really hammers this home of of all the books of the New Testament. Hebrews is the most clear that our hope is the solid thing that God has accomplished for us, right? 
And so we can have the, the feelings of hope in life because our hope is so solid in Jesus. So Colossians 1.5 is restating that as well. Your hope is laid up for you in heaven. That's Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Your hope is a solid rock in him. And then in Colossians 1.23, it says, you should continue on in your faith, though. He's now exhorting us to keep going, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. And so there, we're encouraged to not shift to another hope, right? The world is constantly telling you to hope in other things. The world's always telling you to hope in a new drug, to hope in a new comfort, to hope in a new pleasure, to hope in a new relationship, to hope in more money. And we have to make sure that we're not shifting to those other hopes, but we're continuing to hope in Jesus, that hope which is laid up for us in heaven. And then finally, Colossians 1.27 gets down to what we've been talking about. Hope is something that we bring to other people. In Colossians 1.27, says, God has chosen to make known how great among the non-Jews are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's this amazing mystery that God himself would inhabit our lives, that we would become little temples inhabited by God, that the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven actually transforms our life, and it's Christ in us, our hope of glory. So God's presence in you guarantees that you are able to be hope for other people, that you can be a messenger. God will give you the spiritual power to to listen, to cry with someone, to comfort someone, to speak words of truth to someone. God can use you to be hope for other people. The second point is that the Holy Spirit brings hope. The Holy Spirit brings hope. There are a lot of Old Testament prophecies that begin to be fulfilled in the birth announcement of John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, and of course, the birth of Christ. And so we see, starting in verse 10, verses 10 through 17, this description of the Spirit's work in these last days that are beginning here with John the Baptist. Verse 10, the whole multitude of, let me back up a little bit. So according to the custom of priesthood, verse 9, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he's doing this temple service, which as we said, is the way that God is displaying his hope to the people of God at the temple, right? And then we see what's happening outside. Verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So it's just kind of building up suspense that you've got a lot of people that are gathered to hear a word from the Lord, to see in the sacrificial system and the burning of incense, a word from the Lord, to be reminded of the hope that we have in God. So they're all gathered outside. They're praying, verse 11, And there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Fear fell upon him. I like to remind people every year at Christmas time that angels are scary, right? Um, Angels throughout the scripture are either terrifying monsters or they're like appearing as regular people. They never really appear as fat little babies. So, and that's kind of a disappointment. There might be a special class of fat little cherub babies that we might see in heaven. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying we never see that description in scripture, okay? Typically, they're terrifying. Typically, they just shake people, right? Because these angels are a representation of God's holiness. They're like, they're bringing a little bit of God's holiness and power into the human world. And people are just like freaked out. They come undone. People faint. 
They pass out. They get sick. They tremble. We see all these kinds of reactions. Same thing with Zechariah here. He is terrified. Verse 12 again, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. This is John the Baptist, his birth being announced. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In the New Testament, we see a contrast between being filled with wine versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. The New Testament says, don't be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Be overtaken with the Holy Spirit. And we're being told that John the Baptist is going to be the model for that. We also think there might be something here with like the Nazarite vows in the Old Testament as well. It's not really spelled out. It's just saying, hey, it's not going to be filled with wine. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to overtake him. He's going to be led by God. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's quoting Malachi the last prophet to speak 400 years before this. We've got this 400-year silence, and now we're being reminded of what the last prophet said again. Hey, you know that promise that someone would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare a people, to turn people's hearts back to God and back to each other? That day has come. Here he comes. He's preparing the way for the Lord. This is a sign that these things are beginning to happen. So they've been waiting for 400 years, and now the promise is coming. And of course, it's terrifying for Zechariah, but it's also exciting that the silence has finally been broken. I found a picture of a highway being built. This is probably something you've seen a lot of if you've been around Central Texas very long. We've, we've been under highway construction for the last 100 years, and we will be for another 100 years, I'm sure. But when you're building a highway... Let's just think about it really essentially. You're, you're just trying to build a passageway for people, right? So things can take place. In the ancient world, highways were often built for kings, for emperors. And of course, then you'd have this residual effect of it opening up traffic for travel and for commerce, and it was good for society, just like it is in our society. But in the prophecies about John the Baptist, it's very specific. It says he's going to prepare a way for the Lord. He's going to go before the Lord and he's going to fill in the valleys and he's going to pull down the mountains, right? That's the description of the building the road. Those are uh, quotes that we hear a lot of times at Christmas time. This is the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist is in the power of the Holy Spirit, turning people from their sin back to God. And as he does this, he's preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. And so Daryl Bach, one of the leading Luke scholars of our day, one of the leading Luke scholars that's still alive today at Dallas Theological Seminary, he wrote this in a little Advent devotional I was just reading the other day. A friend just sent me. He says, the idea that John, John the Baptist, called people back to God in preparation for the coming of Jesus is no surprise. That's what prophets do. They call people back to God. 
The call to repent was what Elijah did when he challenged the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. This is in 1 Kings 18. But notice, John was to do something else. Call fathers' hearts back to their children and the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. His preparatory work was also reconciling, whether in families or out in public. Then the passage goes on to say that this is what a people prepared for the Lord look like. If we're going to be prepared for the Lord, for him to come into our lives, this is what it looks like, being reconciled to each other, being listeners to God's word. This means that our religion is not a privatized affair between an individual and God. No, that vertical relationship has a horizontal dimension that impacts how we live and act with those around us. It opens the door to reconciliation. What he's saying is that it's not just individualism. It goes beyond that. Our faith is individual. You and I have to make a choice to trust Jesus with our sin. You can do that right now. That's an individual choice to place your faith in Jesus, to trust that Jesus is enough to pay for your sin, that his resurrection is enough to save you. And yet that results in social change. That results in us actually loving our family, serving our neighbors, transforming our city. It results in something more than just individual relationships. That's what Daryl Bach is talking about here, but really, essentially, that's what the prophets were promising in the ministry of John the Baptist. This last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, the last member of the Old Covenant, the way Jesus describes him, he's coming and he's speaking about repentance, turning from trusting in yourself, your pedigree, your family, and trusting in God. John the Baptist would specifically say, repent and don't tell me that you're a son of Abraham because God can turn rocks into sons of Abraham if he wants to. John the Baptist was telling the people of this day and he's telling us today, turn, turn, repent from trusting in sin or even trusting in success. Is it great to come from a great family? It's great, it's a blessing, but you can't trust in that. You have to trust in God. And that's the way that John the Baptist prepared for Jesus. So this is the Holy Spirit fulfilling those promises that were given back in Malachi, promises that were riffs off of promises in Isaiah. We have these Old Testament exile prophets promising that more is to come. And that even though they'd made it back into the land, they hadn't arrived yet. They were still waiting for their Messiah. And we kind of live in a similar waiting period. Even though we've seen the Messiah and he's risen from the dead, we're still waiting for him to come back and make all things right. So we see these stages of fulfillment and the Holy Spirit is empowering us to listen to him. How do we apply this? I think Galatians 5 is the clearest way for us to apply this Holy Spirit hope. The Holy Spirit brings hope as we listen to the Holy Spirit, as we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We cannot live life in our own power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's illustrated in the life of John the Baptist, but it's made explicit again and again throughout Scripture. So Galatians 5 is kind of a climax at the end of the book of Galatians that's talking about walking in step with the Spirit. It says, if you actually are led by the Holy Spirit, this is what will happen. A famous passage, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Jesus, you've repented 
from trusting in your own desires. You said, I don't trust in those desires anymore. Now I trust in Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus, that's when the Holy Spirit comes alive in your life. And that's made clear through the whole book of Galatians. The problem that the Galatians were having is they wanted to trust in Jesus plus some other things. And Paul said, if you're adding other things to Jesus, you're losing Jesus. You've got to trust only in Jesus. And you can just kind of chart out the book of Galatians. It's trusting in flesh or trusting in spirit. It's trusting in law-keeping or trusting in the gospel. It's trusting in yourself or trusting in God. So ultimately, the application for us to be led by the Spirit is to trust the gospel, to trust Jesus. As we trust Jesus, we are led by his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit empowers us. So Paul finishes the section in Galatians and says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here's a good test for you and for me. If we're really trusting in the Spirit, we're not going to be conceited. We're not going to think that we're amazing. (laughs) We're going to think that God is amazing. It's a good test for walking in step with the Spirit. If we're adding stuff, if we're adding traditions, if we're saying, hey, you can only be really spiritual if you do Christmas my way, or you can only be really spiritual if you read the Bible in the, the time period in the way that I read the Bible, or if you wear the uniform that I wear, or whatever it is, we add all these kind of religious outer layers to our faith. If we're adding things to Jesus, then we can be really conceited. Then I can say, well, I'm, I'm doing the method. Are you doing the method? Obviously, I'm better than you, right? But Paul's saying that's not, that's not keeping in step with the Spirit. Listen to the Spirit, obey His voice, and He'll begin to change you. You'll begin to bear fruit, love, joy, peace, and patience. All right, the final point is that slow fulfillments bring hope. Slow fulfillments bring hope. We see this in the story unfolding very personally for Zechariah. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. What's he saying? Translation, that's impossible, right? Zechariah's like, I'm a very scientific man, and I know this can't be true. Well, the angel has an answer. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I'm thinking the angel is confused, right? Like, like the supernatural things already happened. Like an angel is standing in front of you, and now you're saying like more supernatural things cannot happen? It's kind of confusing. But as I, as I want to beat up on Zechariah, I'm like, I, I do the same thing, right? I think you do the same thing. Like I pray, and God shows his faithfulness, and God helps me. And then a month later, I'm like, God, I really want to do this on my own, right? I'm like the two-year-old trying to tie their shoes. No, let me do it, right? I don't want to ask for help again. I don't want to depend on the supernatural power of God. I, I want to be powerful, like Zechariah. And I want to think through like all the reasons it's not going to work instead of just asking Jesus for help. And so he's having this exchange with Gabriel. Gabriel's like, I I stand with God. I've come to bring you good news. Like, what's up with you, man? Verse 20, behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Slow fulfillments bring hope. Zechariah is being taught to slow down and listen to God. Sometimes God tells us, all right, you want to do this on your own? I'm going to make it real clear that you cannot do it on your own. 
you're going to learn to listen to my voice. I'm not going to allow you to speak anymore. I'm going to strip your power. I'm going to give you some, some teaching time to really pay attention to me, to, to trust me. I want to be clear, God can punish people, and God does punish people, right? But I don't really see this as a punishment. I see this as God saying, I'm going to help you learn to trust me. I'm going to teach you. I wrestle with this in my own life because events happen in my life where I'm like, Lord, I don't want any more of the powerlessness. I want to be powerful, right? I don't want to keep trusting you. I want to do things on my own. And he's like, you know what? Dave, I love you too much. I'm going to teach you to trust me some more. And I think he's probably done that in your life as well. There are just these times where we go through this utter powerlessness, this silence. We're, we're mute. We can't speak. We can't do, and we just have to wait on the Lord. And such sweet things can be taught to us in that time. I never love it going in, but I always am thankful coming out of it. Verse 21 the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, right? So remember the story, you've got these, this multitude that's, that's there, they're praying, they're, they're here for the show. They've come to see the temple display of God's faithfulness through the sacrifices and the burning of incense and yet Zechariah's disappeared. So there's suspense. Is Zechariah gonna bring a word from the Lord for us? What's he gonna do? Is he gonna perform? Will there be a song and dance? What's gonna happen? We see in verse 22, when he came out, He was unable to speak to them. He couldn't say anything. He was powerless. They realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them, but he remained mute. He could not speak. He was struck with silence of his own. Verse 23, when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And then it gives us a little uh, epilogue here, a little afterward. Verse 24, after these days, we don't know how long, after these days, we don't know how slow this fulfillment is, After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Again, she's quoting the Old Testament, this fulfillment that's finally come. It was a painful long wait for her. She didn't want the story to go this way, but this is the story that God has in mind. And we see the fulfillments taking place. We just see that the fulfillments don't always take place on their timetable or our timetable. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I have this experience sometimes of being in a dream and I really need to speak, but I can't speak. Have you ever had that experience? That is so frustrating. Or I need to move and I can't move. I have like really strong sleep paralysis. Sometimes I'll wake my wife up. I'm like, Whoa! you know, I'm trying to speak. And it just comes out as a groan. She's like, what's happening? Um, and it's a very frustrating experience. It's very frustrating to not be able to speak, to, to feel powerless. But you have to wait on the Lord's power. Uh, a way that some of you might be able to relate to is going to the dentist. Any, anybody ever been to the dentist and the dentist is like talking a lot and wants to ask you a lot of questions? And you're like, ha, 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 right? That drives me nuts, right? Um, I'm a talker, right? I like to talk. I'm up here talking to you right now. But sometimes you're just, you're mute. The dentist's like, well, tell me about your family. And then they stick all these instruments in your mouth. And you're like, oh, 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 I don't know. You feel powerless. You can't speak up. I, I share that to just try to lighten the mood a little bit. But, but God gives us different experiences of this, right? Where you're like so wanting to accomplish something, maybe for someone you love, maybe for yourself. And God says, not right now. Maybe not ever. And he forces us to wait. 
and to ask and to listen and to pray. I think powerlessness for me, silence for me, teaches me more than anything else to pray. Keeps bringing me back to prayer. And I said this already, but I'll say it again. I've prayed for things, God's answered, and then I find myself right back in the same situation. I'm like, God, I don't want to pray for this again, which is crazy, right? Like, hopefully I'm not the only crazy one here. I'm, I'm hoping you can learn from my craziness. But I've had this experience of God faithfully providing. I've prayed and he's met me in my prayer. And then a very similar parallel crisis comes up again. And I'm like, God, I'm kind of embarrassed because you already answered this prayer. I don't, I don't really want to have to pray this again, right? I, I want to encourage you that God, God wants us to pray. Keep praying. It's a discipline of our faith that we would keep asking. He wants us to be askers. In Luke 11, it'll come up later in the Gospel of Luke. It's really clear that we should see our heavenly Father as a sweet and good Father that wants to give generously as we ask. He says, even you earthly fathers, even though you're evil losers, it's basically my paraphrase of what Jesus says, even you evil loser fathers, you still do nice things for your kids. How much more our heavenly Father when we ask, he'll give us his Holy Spirit. Slow fulfillments bring hope. Pray. Keep praying. Pray in the morning. Pray at night. Pray before you eat. Find new ways to pray. Pray scripture. There are a lot of guides out there. Uh, we have a Lent prayer guide that we use during the Lent season before Easter. We'll give that, uh, pass that out. There's a great book that we've loved in our family called Every Moment Holy. It's just got some kind of poetic prayers you can pray before changing a diaper, a prayer for mowing the lawn, you know, a prayer for cooking a meal. It just kind of adds these cool prayers into everyday life. There's a great Puritan guide called Valley of Vision. A lot of people really enjoy that as well. One of my favorite books on prayer that I would recommend to you to just kind of learn praying and learning to be dependent on a good father is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller, which is a great book to learn that Jesus loves you and he wants to meet you there in prayer. Well, we'll wrap up here. Um, as I said, hope is both a feeling and it's also a rock-solid reality. Hope is me wanting good things to come to pass. And hope is the reality that Jesus has finished the work, that he has conquered sin and death, and that hope is laid up for us in heaven. Colossians is real clear in laying this out. Just as my friend was, was waiting and hoping for good results, from his surgery and from his biopsy. And then when he got the results, he had like tangible evidence of that hope, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay, right? It looks like they got it all. It's the same experience we go through in our faith. I'm, I'm wishing for good. I'm wishing that God would fix me. I'm wishing that God would redeem the world. And I have this solid anchor in heaven, Jesus Christ himself. He has conquered sin and death. He is the solidness of our hope. And so when we slow down to meditate on the idea of hope this time of year, yes, we want to feel it. We want to wish our way towards God doing good things and trust him, but we want to remind ourselves that there's this solid rock and it's Jesus himself and he is there and our hope is secure whether we feel it or not. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you gave yourself for us. You've come to rescue us. As we look at these stories, these preparation stories of the forerunner, John the Baptist, remind us that you've laid it all out for us. 
that you've come for us. And even though we feel so alone in the silence and in the waiting, we know that you're with us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.